Hello, it's Felix and this is The Rep, Rugby's economic podcast. This is the show that looks at how money, power and politics impact the game that we all love so much, shining a floodlight on the challenges rugby faces as a global sport and offers suggestions on how they may be tackled. Up until now, we've been looking back at how rugby got to where it is today, from amateurism and empire to apartheid politics and professionalism. We've come so far in such a short time. Today I'd like to talk about the money, how rugby as a global game puts the food on the table, the different business models that have emerged and the struggle between club and country that dominates so much of the rugby narrative in Europe today. So settle in because we're raiding the club bar. The start of professionalism was hard for the crusty old men in the international rugby board. They oversaw the changing of rugby from sport to sports entertainment and they were not prepared for this evolution at all. In the Northern Hemisphere, like a first-time father left in charge of his newborn, they hadn't a clue how to handle professionalism, and it showed. In fact, nobody knew how to handle it. Coaches had no idea how much they should train the players or how hard they should work them now that they had unlimited access to them. Clubs thought that they could flog players seven hours a day and expect them to play well at the weekend. This was found out quick enough. Contracting was another bugbear. Nobody understood how much a prop should get paid or a fly half. Players were signed up to crazy multi-year contracts irregardless of age. There are stories of 31-year-old players being signed on five-year deals. Absolute madness, unless you're Johnny Sexton. But all of this couldn't be sustained. You see, it was the clubs in England that were signing the players, not the big city boys in the RFU. Without a big TV deal and the associated sponsorship, the newly professional clubs would soon be facing bankruptcy literally writing checks their body couldn't cash. Something needed to change. South of the equator, very little had changed for the Sanzar countries, mostly because they had been closet professionals for years. Like that cheeky fullback who's always kicking penalties at the end of training, only to get called in for a winning penalty when you're down injured. The git. Yes, for South Africa, New Zealand and Australia, the newly opened game of rugby just meant a bit more polishing on the product. Super Rugby took off in March 1996 and fully embraced a new TV deal with Rupert Murdoch. Imitating other professional sports at the time, it wasn't long before glitz and glamour were brought to Super Rugby, with cheerleaders, pyrotechnics and even mascots introduced. I say that all of these gimmicks were par for the course and had their place, but the reason Super Rugby really stood out was for the quality of the rugby being played. The players in the Southern Hemisphere were further along the professional path and were reaping the benefits. They were fitter, they were stronger, they played a free-flowing, balls-out attacking rugby, and the product was everything Murdoch thought it would be. For the players, there was the knock-on commercial benefits to being fitter and stronger. They'd actually become attractive, especially to sponsors who now wanted to sign up these players to promote their trainers or appear on their magazine covers, but more on sponsorship in a bit. In New Zealand, the Kiwi Union realised early on that the players and the coaches were their biggest assets. They decided to secure the future of the game by signing everyone up to the union centrally. This gave the union the full control over the game in New Zealand, responsible for paying the players' salaries, supporting the Tier 2 professional clubs in Super Rugby, as well as the grassroots amateur and age-grade levels. On the flip side, they reaped all of the reward too. Most of the main commercial deals were agreed by the union, including the TV broadcast deal and shirt sponsors. The New Zealand Rugby Union also dictate who is eligible to play in the all-black jersey, currently limited to players who play their rugby in New Zealand alone. 
This was a smart decision in hindsight, as today's mega money clubs in England, France and Japan can afford to pay players two or three times what they might earn in New Zealand. But the allure of the black shirt with the silver fern keeps the players grounded in New Zealand. In England, the clubs were in dire straits. Famous rugby strongholds like Roslyn Park ultimately decided they couldn't cut it on the professional circuit and opted to remain an amateur club. This saw their demise from English rugby's top tiers to the lower divisions where they've remained until today. Opting to run their own race, Roslyn Park have committed to maintaining a semi-professional ethos, targeting a spot in England's second division and maintaining financial stability. Other clubs in England were a little luckier than Roslyn Park. They were able to attract wealthy benefactors who saw the potential in investing in this newly professional sport. Enter the Sugar Daddy. (laughs) To support the club game, English clubs were bought out by, well, wealthy fans essentially. Businessmen like Nigel Ray and Andrew Brownsward bought into their respective clubs when they needed them most. This last minute funding allowed teams like Saracens and Bath to maintain their top tier positions and start recruiting the best players at home and abroad. Relative success has been achieved by both as a result, earlier for Bath and more recently for Saracens. But owning a professional club isn't all it's cracked up to be. With the exception of the Exeter Chiefs, every club in the English Premiership recorded a loss for 2020. These losses are then covered in many cases by the owner themselves by means of loans. For Bruce Craig, current Bath owner, that has meant more than £18 million since he bought the club in 2010. That's an expensive hobby, even for a millionaire. What, might you ask, is driving those losses? Well, it's predominantly wage bills and, since Covid, lost revenues from the gate receipts as there haven't been any matches. But let's focus on salaries. Player salaries have gone through the roof over the past 10 years, driven by the global movement of ageing superstars trying to cash in at the end of their careers and crafty agents who increasingly know the going rates for players in each position. To stem the tide, the RFU implemented a salary cap in 1999, a financial ceiling to stop the clubs overspending on players in an attempt to ensure the financial viability of the clubs and keep the league as competitive as possible. This year, following the Saracen scandal in 2019-2020, the cap has been set at £6.4 million, with a few credits and exclusions. These are important because they allow a club to greatly increase their cap and include homegrown player credits totaling 600 k up to 50 k per player, designed to incentivize the clubs to retain homegrown talent, an international player credit of 80 k per player to cover absences during the international periods, injured player credits totaling 400 k to allow replacement players to cover for long-term injuries, and two completely excluded players whose salary is excluded from the total at the end of the day. So, in practice, if your club had 12 players in the squad who came through your academy system and a further six players in the England squad, your salary cap would lift from £6.4 million to £7.5 million, and you would still be able to sign two absolute superstars whose salaries are completely exempt. It's no wonder clubs are falling foul of the pressures to win and incurring financial losses as a result. But what if money wasn't an issue? Amongst the different leagues of rugby union around the world, there is one would-be panacea. Bolstered by the prospect of hosting the Rugby World Cup in 2019, Japan emerged as the unlikely next stronghold of professional club rugby. The difference from the union dictatorship and the sugar daddy models here is that the corporations, not individuals, are funding the game. This doesn't stop at sponsorship and logos on jerseys. These multinationals actually own the teams. 
Since the early 2000s, companies like Coca-Cola, Suntory, Toshiba and Mitsubishi have done battle on the rugby pitch as well as in the market, with their employees playing for their semi-professional teams. Why semi-professional? Well, it's not just John from Accounts and Peter from the warehouse lining out at the weekend looking for that water cooler glory come Monday morning. No, you see, the lads could be sharing a changing room with legends of the professional game, and many times they are. Aging professionals like New Zealand's Dan Carter have done stints in Japan for Kobe's Kobelco Steelers. Topping up their pension funds, they are well-paid employees of the company, and they deliver. Like in France, recent years saw more than just semi-retired players coming to the land of the rising sun. England's George Cruz, Wales's Hadley Park, Australia's captain Michael Hooper are there, and even two-time World Rugby Player of the Year Bowden Barrett has seconded there during a brief absence from Super Rugby. With all these stars of the game descending on Japan, the Japanese Rugby Football Union have had to intervene to ensure the growth of homegrown talent was happening and not being overlooked by the multinational rivalries. The result was some simple rules around how many foreign-born players could be on the pitch per team at the same time. Landing on two, this made the Japanese top league prosper, with more local players being paid as professional rugby players by their respective companies. Fast forward and emboldened by their 2019 World Cup quarter-final appearance, the JRFU have decided to change tact in an attempt to improve Japanese rugby and capitalise on the sport's increasing popularity there. Their view is simple. Not many semi-professional nations make it in the Rugby World Cup, never mind a World Cup quarter-final. If this international success is to continue, then the game needs to be fully professional at an elite club level too. This has led to the announcement of Japan's newly revamped club game. Starting in 2022, called League One, this will be a three-division, 25-team professional circuit with 12 teams competing in the top flight. To improve rugby at grassroots level, a club cannot take part if they do not have a junior academy and are involved in local community projects. This has been received with mixed emotions by the corporations who have been told to get on the train because it's moving fast. Toyota's team who've ended up in Division 3 due to past performance have gracefully said they're disappointed in the changes but will do the rest of their talking on the pitch. On the other hand, Coca-Cola have completely disbanded their team, the Red Sparks. It remains to be seen how Japan's new league will pan out next year. But either way, it'll be interesting to see how the relationship between the corporations and the union go. Okay, you know the drill by now. Line up and get the ball running through the hands. It's skip pass. The part of the show where we hold on to the ball at the back of the mall and wait until the ref calls use it. Until then, we might as well take a breather and reflect on the happenings of the game. This week, we're going to talk about the All Blacks. No, not the team, but the brand instead. There's a reason New Zealand's passport is black. The silver fern of New Zealand coated in black has been the symbol of national identity since the 1905 tour to the home nations where Dave Gallagher's men were unbeaten in all but one game away from home. That unbeaten record has more or less stuck with the All Blacks over the past 100 years, making New Zealand one of the most successful sporting teams, never mind rugby teams of all time. That kind of strike rate and winning mentality is exactly the ethos that brands and sponsors like to align themselves to. With professionalism came the freedom for players and unions to capitalise on this winning record and their personal fame. In 1999, the NZRU penned a deal with Adidas to be the official shirt manufacturer for the All Blacks, a deal worth £28 million at the time. This deal has been extended since then and there's no sign yet that it will end. Could you really imagine another supplier making the AB's jersey? 
In other fields, the All Blacks have sponsorships with telecommunications companies like Vodafone and more recently luxury brands like Rolex's sub-brand Tudor. The Tudor deal was undisclosed, but saw Bowden Barrett get a piece of the action as brand ambassador. Little known outside New Zealand is the Weedabix sponsorship, which sees the All Blacks present at almost every breakfast table in New Zealand each morning, winning more than just Kiwi dollars for the union, but maintaining mindshare with the fans more importantly. However, despite all of these, probably the most lucrative sponsorship for the All Blacks is the one on the front of the shirt. Since 2012, it's been US insurance powerhouse AIG, following their brief stint with English Premier League's Manchester United. But the sun's setting on that deal and from next year, the All Blacks will have a new name on the jersey, Altrad. Now, where have you heard that before? That's right, that's the same sponsor as the French rugby team. Oh, but isn't that, yeah, Altrad is owned by the same billionaire who owns Montpellier in France. And that's part of the sponsorship. Moet Altrad's five-year sponsorship of the French Rugby Federation worth about 35 million euro is a shadow compared to the new six-year New Zealand deal, rumoured to be worth more than 70 million euro to the NZRU. More interestingly, the deal also states that the All Blacks will play four matches in Montpellier between 22 and 26, and there will be a skill and knowledge exchange between the All Blacks and Altrad's Montpellier club. That will no doubt increase the attractiveness of the club as a prospective club for all players. Like who wouldn't want to have a skill exchange program with the All Blacks? But it also helps secure the French club's financial independence with the All Blacks games a guaranteed draw for fans. So why do the All Blacks hoard themselves out so much? Well, it's not as simple as the L'Oreal strapline of because you're worth it would have you believe. It's more out of necessity. The simple economics of it are, with probably the largest pool of world-class players in world rugby, Keeping the players in New Zealand is expensive. Paying players competitive salaries, albeit not record-breaking, along with the carrot of playing for the All Blacks is necessary to keep driving standards and continually improve. There are many places in the world where rugby is not well known and where players walk down the street without being recognised, but they all recognise the All Blacks jersey and their famous haka. It would be negligent of the New Zealand Rugby Union not to take advantage of this fact to support the game in New Zealand. Given the advantages that the Kiwis are able to capitalise on, how did the other unions wash their face? Well, at a macro level, a union's income is driven principally by the international game, specifically the ticket receipts from hosting rugby internationals and sponsorships, the sale of merchandise like replica jerseys and lucrative broadcast deals. The unions also receive funding from World Rugby, the new name for the International Rugby Board since 2014, and local governments to progress the game in their respective territories. This has become significantly important given the global pandemic. Without fans at games, the union's main money spinner has been completely eroded with national governments and World Rugby having to step in to support. World Rugby announced in April 2020 that they would be making $100 million available to the unions as part of a relief fund, with the Six Nations and Sanzar unions receiving their part in the form of advances and loans. Emerging nations, on the other hand, appear to have received grants. In true Tesco fashion, every little helps, but some rugby unions may be beyond repair. The Australian Rugby Union reported $27 million in losses for 2020 and openly discussed the possibility of returning to amateurism in their AGM. They now look set to invite private equity investors to the table, offering them a 15% piece of the wallaby pie. Meanwhile, across the pond in America, USA Rugby is coming out the other side of Chapter 11 bankruptcy which is basically a restructuring exercise allowing them to run the gas off the electricity for a little while longer. Seriously though, I do hope USA Rugby pulls through.
If we look closer to home then, England were forecasting losses of about £145 million in 2020, but have received £135 million from the UK government, most of that in the form of repayable loans, with approximately 45% of it going to the English Premiership. Wales posted a £22 million loss, which could have been worse, but was offset by significant cost-cutting and delayed investments. Scotland were a little bit of an outlier on the other hand. They posted a £10.5 million surplus for 2020. Now I know what you're thinking, stingy Scots had it all tucked into the mattress. But this was not quite the case. Do you remember the Six Nations were delayed until like November or something of that year? Well, they had a delayed payment of about £3 million from Six Nations for that, which added to the nearly £10 million they got as part of the CVC investment for the Pro 14 URC, putting them in the black for the year. They also got funding from the Scottish government. Cheeky gets. Home here in Ireland, the IRFU slashed its non-playing staff and cut salaries across the board anywhere from 10 to 50%. Meanwhile, it received funding from the Irish government of about £18 million in 2020 and a further £2 million from Sport Ireland in 2021. However, to compound woes, Guinness pulled out of its sponsorship of the Autumn International window after 16 years, leaving the IRFU holding the collection plate very late in the day. It remains to be seen how Irish rugby, long seen as one of the shining lights in rugby's financial governance, will get itself back to such highs of 2018 when the national team in Leinster reached such highs. For a union, getting the money in is one problem, but spending it is another. You see, when you're prioritising where to spend the money, you're showing what your priorities are, and by contrast, what they're not. There's been a lot of talk here recently of Irish rugby's push on the rugby sevens, with the Olympics in Tokyo having been a big draw but at the expense of the women's game. Unfortunately, the current women's 15 side have not qualified for the Women's World Cup, with a portion of that side coming from the Sevens programme and not had their full 15s game time really required to compete at their full potential. These kind of conflicts seem to litter the game of rugby, rearing their ugly heads from time to time. The most famous of these, topical again at this time, is the battle between the union and the professional clubs in England. At the root of the problem is rugby's colonial beginnings, and the importance of international games. The popularity of these games and playing for your country representing the highest honour has led to an over-reliance on the commercial impact of the international game. This is what funds over 80% of the unions. The opposite is true in other sports like soccer or rugby league, where the club game is king. In many rugby nations, this creates a battle between the clubs and the unions for access to players. In England, this problem is worsened because the clubs pay the players wages and expect them to be available when required. An impossible decision for any player who has to weigh up playing for their country versus playing for their paymasters. To make this work, the clubs essentially have to carry larger rosters of players and agree with the union for the release of the players during international windows. This comes at a significant cost to the clubs, especially when we remember most of these clubs aren't turning a profit to begin with. There is however a solution. World Rugby could fix the rugby calendar. But it's not that simple. The rugby calendar, practically spread across 12 months of the year, faces the challenges of history, the seasons and the established commercial interests, which all need to be factored in before changes can be made. Oh, and you have to consider the PRL. Not only do they own the players, but today Premiership Rugby is worth over £1 billion. That carries a lot of weight and they and the boys in World Rugby don't always see eye to eye. We're going to call it there for this week, but next week we'll be back for the second leg of this financial tussle. We'll continue discussing the global calendar, talking about why do we need it, how it could work, what are the challenges involved in making that work, and who are the players involved. We'll also set the scene for rugby's latest stakeholders, 
private equity and talk about how they might play a role in all of this. So until then, please do us a favor at the rep and subscribe. This will let you have future episodes delivered directly to your device wherever you listen to your podcast. And if you can, be sound and give us a rating or review and share with your mates. Go well.